welcome to another episode of Black Boy Joy. You are here with me, Ainsley. And with me, Kieran. Yes, this is a special episode because it is our 20th episode. We wasn't sure if we were going to five, would you, Kieran? No, exactly. It's gone fast as well. Um, we have gone pretty quickly. We've had highs, we've had a lot coronavirus lows, we've had it all. <laughs> um, for our 20th episode, we have a very, very special guest. We are pleased to welcome uh, Mr. Doctor, sorry, Doctor Mark Parkinathan. He's a consultant physician in sexual health and HIV, and he's working with uh, Guidance St. Thomas NHS Trust. So, welcome to welcome, welcome Mark. Hi, well, uh, thank you for asking me, Ainsley and Kieran. I'm really honoured. Oh well, no problem at all. So, um, when we started doing um, doing this podcast, we knew for sure that like one thing that we wanted to talk about was about sexual health and mm-hmm. especially yeah. our black queer community. And yeah. I could think of no better person to have that conversation with about it than with you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about for a long time too. Yeah. So to yeah. give everyone a bit of background, I actually think that the very first sexual health screen I ever had was with you, Dr. Ma. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, we were very different then. So, you know, I, I didn't recognise you. And, no, you know, yeah. I, I don't recognise faces, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I wasn't the, the, um, the confident podcasting host that you see today. Yeah. I actually didn't, I, I obviously, because you see so many people, it'd be silly for me to expect you to remember me. But um, when we had our sexual health screen, that's kind of like we had lots of conversations, not just about sexual health, but about my identity as a black queer man, about coming out, about being in a closet, about all sorts of things. And like that was about two years ago, but it left an impression on me. So much so that I remembered your name and so much so that like when we kind of wanted to find someone to talk to, I thought that you would be the person because you were open and we could talk then, as, like, not just as a doctor, the patient, but just as two people. And that's kind of like one of the reasons why we brought you here today or we've asked you to come come and be on it today. Oh, thank you. That's that's really, I actually do remember, you know, when we started talking again, I do remember that conversation because it was a bit longer than other conversations. <laughs> I, do take special care, I do take special care of people who are um, coming out or haven't quite come out or struggling with identity and, and, and identity secrecy, which is what it is, you know, and also, you know, from my own experience of coming out, when I came out, I thought that was the end. I'm out. I can just carry on life. But actually, coming out was the beginning of self-acceptance. And it was a 20-year journey for me mm-hmm. of self-acceptance. Mm. Because undoing the things of my childhood and my teenage years and my early adulthood uh, took a long time. And I came, coming out was just that first step. It wasn't the, it wasn't the end. You know, I wasn't like all gay and perfect and happy at that moment. It was like I was damaged and hurt from lots of things in the past. And I was in the, uh, on the beginning of this new flower opening. But yeah, there were a lot of creaks and cracks in the process. So yes, yeah, so I do I do take special care because I, I, I have the knowledge of my own experience, but also of all the patients I've looked after. So when I see someone young, I want to make sure that they're, they're going to be okay and, um, you know, take us make, make special attention, you know, make special reference to it yeah well that's great and it's definitely 100% helped me before we kind of like get into one of that sort of sexual health thing I know nothing about like um kind of like medical career so like yeah. what is a consultant physician so you know they have like a doctor what yeah right so basically um uh medical careers are really complicated so I guess they're divided into three groups of people well, actually, how do we do it? So you got the group of doctors that give pills, mm-hmm. who are either physicians that work primarily from hospital or community organizations, but they're specialists. So they got a narrow area of practice. And then you get primary care, which is GPs, uh, who look after people as the first point of contact. So secondary care, usually you're referred, okay, into, so for dermatology or whatever it is. And, um, and then you get uh, surgeons, and then you get psychiatrists, okay, surgeons cut, uh, or, or do that kind of thing, interventional procedures, and then um, the psychiatrists talk to people and also tend to give pills. So you've got mental health, surgical, phys- physicians like me, uh, and then you've got primary care. I guess there are other areas now that are developing, like 
something called interventional radiology you know the x-ray specialists who can look at x-rays and scans and tell you what's going on they're increasingly you know doing things like unblocking arteries and things using x-ray method you know technique technology so they're like robotics and things so there's a complicated it is complicated but basically the journey is pretty much the same to end up as a gp or a surgeon or a, or a specialist physician whether it's in diabetes or sexual health you have to go to medical school first of all which is generally a five or six year course depending where you study and then um and that's longer than everybody else because everybody's done by three and you're like still got two years to go so it's first of all quite sad in scotland the undergraduate courses where i went in aberdeen there are four years so i got to stay with my friends for four years and then they all just left to me abandoned me you know my non-medical friends and i was quite sad and lonely in my fifth year because my a lot of my friends were not not in the in my class in medical school um, and then it's five years and you graduate and then you're supposed to start looking after people. So at the moment you then enter a postgraduate program. So you're not finished, but you're working. So you're working and studying you're like an apprentice then. Mm -hmm. So you have two years as like a junior apprentice, uh, you know, working on hospitals, primary care, sexual health, wherever you might get a little different jobs. And I did, I did um, what we call a medical rotation, which is like basically doing emergency medicine, looking after patients with heart attacks, strokes, um, um, pneumonia, anything, working uh, out of a either a &E or working on a medical ward, but coming down to a &E to look after them, bring them into the ward. Um, not not surgical, medicals, not, not people who needed operations, but people who are sick in other ways. And then um, there's also, um, 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 what do we call it? Then after that, you've decided if you want to specialize. So that that takes two years currently where you're the junior apprentice and then you um, become a more senior apprentice. And that takes another three years where you have to do your postgraduate exams mm -hmm. two or three years where you, where you get um, uh, other qualifications. It's a, it's a postgraduate diploma. So it's the member of the Royal College of Physicians. It's really hard to pass. And you have to usually have to get take more than one attempt to get through it, and it's quite expensive, and you have to do it in your spare time. So it's quite hard. I was I, I basically gave my twenties up to studying, working, and studying, and not enjoying myself very much. And then, um, and then you go into what we call postgraduate uh, specialist training. So to be a specialist, and the GPs uh, when at the at the earlier level do GP training, and they do a GP exam, which is quite hard as well to be a GP. And then other specialists have other specialist exams. So like in our specialist, there's the Diploma of HIV Medicine and the Diploma of Genitourinary Medicine and the Diploma for the Faculty of Sexual Health, uh, Reproductive and Sexual Health. So you get to get these diplomas, you've got to go through various hoops and you've got to show that you're competent at work. Yeah. And then you get signed off and then it's a legal process to be designated a specialist. Uh, and then once you become a specialist, the journey isn't over because obviously things change in medicine all the time. So you're learning about all the new things, particularly in HIV. When I started, there was not very many treatments available. And then you learn about new treatments and then you, you see patients. All of the time you're seeing patients from after medical school. So I was 23 when I started seeing patients and I'm now 52. Um, so, um, but obviously I was working at a more junior level and then I went to a training level and then I'm now, then became a consultant, but then a consultant is in the end because then you're a junior consultant and then you, you learn to deal with stress. You learn to deal with a team. You learn to deal with changing the way you work and bringing new things in and developing new ideas and coping with lack of money or cuts and all that kind of thing, which is very stressful. It really, I found it really, really difficult and, um, and in fact, I took a year out, um, year before last, to to um, just to breathe. And I went and did a master's because I'm a bit crazy. I don't just take a year out to relax. So I'm working, <laughs> I'm working on my craziness. <laughs> Stop on it. Um, and then I, I've come back in, but I'm very refreshed. So, you know, I've got a lot of black boy joy or brown boy joy. <laughs> oh, great, great. Thanks for that. So in your in your typical day as a physician and consultant, if there is a typical day, um, what would you right. end up doing on most days? Does it vary from one day to the next? Or? Yeah. So basically, you have a job that's split into direct clinical care and supporting professional activities, and different people have a different split. And some people have research a research portfolio. So if you're a clinical academic, you have a a, a job plan that might be fifty percent research, twenty percent direct clinical care, and ten percent. Um, supporting professional activity, for example, which is, doesn't add up to 100, but assume it did. Um, 
And then, so that's your, your week. And the average week is 40 hours. And obviously, because you're a senior, most people end up doing a little bit of extra at the evenings and weekends to catch up, depending on your on your rotation. And then you have to work some... In my job, I have to work weekends uh, because our clinic's open seven days a week. So if you work a weekend, you might get some time off in the week as long as you fulfill your 40-hour contract. My job is primarily direct clinical care. So I have like 75% um, to 80% seeing patients and then a, a proportion of time for supporting professional activity. So my DCC or direct clinical care means I'm, I'm on clinic or I'm you know doing stuff related to patient care. And then the rest of the time I get to do things like my research projects or audit or catch up with my reading to make sure I'm up to date. Um, you know, training medical students or training junior doctors or, um, you know, doing, you know, developing teaching um, modules for staff, which is what I'm doing at the moment. And what I'm doing at the moment in that SPA time is actually trying to improve services for gay men. So we are, we've got formed a group uh, and we're working to improve like uh, the offer uh, to gay and bisexual men and men of sex with men when they access our service. So we are, you know, trying to 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 do some of the stuff that I did pre in my previous place of work of just making sure people get uh, holistically managed around mental health, substance use, alcohol. But also this time we're going to bring in the new sexy thing of intersectionality, which is then <laughs> religion, culture, disability, race, uh, um, racism, and the experience of racism within the gay community as well, and uh, and the other co the concepts like displacement. So you know we we are more likely. I, I was thinking about this. If you took a thousand straight people in any big city, and a thousand gay people were, and we measured their average distance from where they were born or where they call home, I wonder what the average distance would be for the gay population versus the straight population. And I have a feeling that the gay population are generally further away from home, wherever home is. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah. yeah. And that's because it's international, but also national, but national people travel long distances to be in big cities. Yeah. Uh, and because often it's just not safe to be near home, wherever home is. Yeah. And I think we are, we are you know, we take it for granted that um, we don't need our family. We can stand on our own two feet. But no man's an island. We do need our family and we do need our support structures. Yeah. And we have to build and create them. And we don't not very good at doing it sometimes. And sometimes it's just very hard to do that. And and sometimes, you know, the family are supportive and sometimes they're not. So um, yeah. so I think if, if distance is one thing and then the other thing is is a proxy for social support, then I wonder if we looked at things like, uh, belongingness how well how belonging how belonging do you, uh, belong to the word belonging belongingness uh, which is do you feel that you belong somewhere yeah. and uh, i think that can be related to whether you make healthy choices or not yeah um so lots of like concept you know social concepts i'm not a social scientist but i'm really interested in how social issues impact on health choices because we always blame the person who's overeating that it's their fault or the gay man who's maybe taking too many drugs and having uh, risky sex and, and getting you know syphilis repeatedly like he should change his behavior but we don't look at belongingness and how far people are away from home and how safe the environment has been growing up and yeah. you know and then you expect the individual to make all these changes when actually society structure uh you know we have to just be more compassionate which is my bottom line, yeah. that we don't really understand and we can't just tell individuals that they should be more responsible because i think i think people should just try to put themselves in other people's shoes sometimes yeah i think so one of the interesting things that you just mentioned there was kind of like that whole thing of distance Mm. I kind of think that like when you um when you well especially as like a queer person mm -hmm. uh, we're, f uh, we're from Birmingham I'm from Birmingham which isn't that mm. far away from uh, from where I am now in London and mm. when I moved here it's kind of the only time that I really felt comfortable to like or a little enough distance between like me and home to like mm. kind of explore sexuality whatever like get into relationships with people of the same sex and things like that and mm. kind of there's um, there's also like that distance gives you that you can live your life over here and all the issues that you might have back at home are just separate or separated. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Think about that. You can like close the door, lock the key away, live your best life and not think about it until you have to go back home again. Mm -hmm. But then that also like it brings up another issue that like um, that you can't be your whole self with people that you spent your life with and your formative experiences with. 
Yeah, that's it. That's what we psychologists call compartmentalization. Yeah. So yeah. If the more compartments you have, the more stressful it is yeah. because you're never quite sure which compartment you're meant to be in. So you're changing identities in each one. Yeah. And um, and you're always concealing one identity wherever you are. Uh, and that is fear-based, right? I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected. Uh, I'm afraid I won't belong and I'm afraid they won't consider me part of them. So I have to hide this bit of me, mm-hmm. whether you're at home with family, where you're hiding your, your gayness or equaneness or, or your or your cultural heritage when you're in gay company of different culture. So always hiding a part of you is what they lead to minority stress, isn't it? It's the minority stress theory yeah. is that if you chronically experience homophobia, that's not good, but you might also chronically experience Islamophobia. You might chronically experience racism. You might chronically, you know, where depending where you are. So at home, you won't be feeling racist, racism, but you'll be feeling homophobia. In your gay community, you might be feeling racism and homo- uh, Islamophobia, but not homophobia. So it's um, it's a complicated uh, web of things. And I, I think it's the relationships between all of them and which you know, what kind of resilience we have, how much, how aware we are with it and how we're able to take care of it. Because I, I guess we can't change the world because, you know, my mom's always going to be a bit racist and homophobic. So I'm going to have to just try and educate her the best I can, but not let the minority stress eat me yeah. uh, and make sure that I have uh, some exercise that afternoon or talk to a friend about it or um, exercise the stress rather than hold it within me. So it's about changing the world which is obviously my mission but i don't think i'm going to achieve it in my lifetime but we should all try to change the world in a little way that we can but also uh, acknowledge that how to live within it uh, as it is imperfect and messy and 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 nasty sometimes as it is Uh, how do we cope with the nastiness how do we cope with uh, the cruelty and rejection and how do we cope with unkind words that cut through the heart and um you know ignorant ignorant uh, and uh, ego-based uh, criticisms um, by others. Mm-hmm. So we, we, have a, we have a special calling as minority people. And those with my, being a minority of different levels have an even higher calling, which is learning new resilience factors and how to take care of ourselves. And, and, and I don't have all the answers, but I think the more of us that go on that journey, the richer the experience will be that we can share with each other. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So what was it that made you get into like sexual health specifically? Oh, um, oh God. Yeah. Okay. So let guess a uh, picture this, right? 1986. I'm 18. I'm in Aberdeen. I was born there, but I never lived there because I grew up in Malaysia and Singapore and I'd come back to school in Brighton. And I was on my own uh, from 60. Well, I left home at 11, actually. So that, of course, screwed me up. But anyway, uh, and then in this country where I was born, which I never really lived in, apart from when I was a child for a bit, uh, I've come back to school and then I'm going up to Scotland because I have this fantasy that I'm going to return to the land of my birth and it's going to be absolutely amazing. So Aberdeen, 1986, the oil town, you know, Thatcher's Britain, coal mines are being shut, oil is blooming in the North Sea. The, uh, everybody's got like their Filofax and their, you know, video games and things like that are starting. their shoulder pads. Shoulder pads are in. <laughs> I turn up in my very colourful shirt, my large quiff. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, my ripped jeans. Remember, ripped jeans came out in the 80s. Uh, and then um, uh, and uh, my babysitter picks me up and... Uh, um, and she obviously makes it very clear she doesn't, she's not babysitting me. She hasn't got any capacity. She's an older woman now. And that was quite a, a sweet moment. And then, like, my mum had a babysitter when I was three months old. That's another reason I was screwed up, another matter. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, but anyway, that was lovely. And then I went to uni, and, um, and uh, it was the beginning of AIDS, wasn't it? The gay plague. Right, yeah. <laughs> And uh, and then the AIDS don't die of ignorance leaflets came through the doors, um, and it was a really scary time. Those adverts, and I was, um, you know, uh, you know, hearing about this. And obviously, I was somebody who was, uh had no supervision, nobody to talk to, no sexual health clinic to access, uh, no wisdom uh, to gain from anyone, and I was just doing it on my own. You know, I was finding sex in all the wrong places, um, taking being taken advantage of by older men, 
Um, and and uh, thankfully and mysteriously managed to escape HIV. However, I was terrified by it. And I had my first HIV test when I was in my th fourth year of medical school. And um, I waited to wait 10 days for the result. Can you imagine waiting 10 days for an HIV? Yeah, yeah. It was the worst 10 days of my life. And I mean, thank God it was fine at the time because obviously there was no treatment at the time. Yeah. And, um, and um, obviously now, if anybody listening has just been diagnosed positive, it's absolutely fine. You can live to old age and have an amazing life. Yeah. And if you take treatment and you're undetectable, you know, you can't pass it on. So that's all great. Okay, so this is going back in history when it was just a bit of a darker time. And obviously I was so scared about it. And obviously I was also scared of being gay and also scared of being gay and a doctor. Mm -hmm. We end up having HIV. So I worked. So, and the other thing is I was in Aberdeen. And by this time I'd fallen out of love with Aberdeen. Okay, I was born there, but it was a shithole full of rich people with yeah. Porsche. And I was the student, and then there was this poor, um, poor people who were poor white people who had no prospects, and they used to beat students up because we were seen as the people who were becoming the rich people in the Porsches. Mm -hmm. So there was the casuals that were attacking the students, and you know there was a bit of casual racism as well, like you know, you know, packy and spat in your face and all that. It was the eighties. Oh, that, that's, that's not casual. That's not casual. Racism. Say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, didn't, time, it, I you know, I think <laughs> when they beat the shit out of me is when I think that's bad. But nobody really beat the shit out of me. It's just like verbal verbal abuse, right? If someone uh, if someone verbally abuses you, that's not casual. That's not casual. You see, look, you see how conditioned I am from the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. See how badly conditioned I am. So I've I've got to like even raise my um. See if see even I I'm not I'm not uh, disgusted enough, am I? Just like take it. Because uh, if you grow up in that environment, you. you get quite a thick skin don't you and you kind of yeah, yeah, you become more resilient as a result but then yeah maybe you, you kind of feel harsh person. and criticizing it they were the sick person right they were jealous it was envy or something got in them that was because they they probably saw me as someone at opportunity or doing something that they wanted to do that they couldn't yeah. so it's you know so they were sick and they this is how they were expressing it and and again letting other people's sickness into your life is is uh is bad for us right so if we get mm get up on our high horse too much and it's hurtful to us because of the anger is wounding us, then that's not good either. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so there's, they're seeking justice uh, in a even way. And there's also, yeah, you're right. Not taking abuse. I mean, I wouldn't take it now. Bloody hell. I'd run after them now. You know, now I would yeah. just, don't you talk to me like that. Or, you know, if I saw yeah. a bully, then just stop it. Uh, but you're right. But at the time it was one of those things, but not among students. Students were very open and, um, but you know, it was still a very um, difficult time because it was clause. Is it clause twenty eight and twenty seven? I've completely forgot. Section twenty eight. Section twenty eight. That's right. No uh, teaching in schools. Of yeah, that was coming through. So it was a very toxic time, and it with HIV as well. So at the time when I finished medical school, I was desperate to move to Edinburgh, and I don't know if any of you've been to the Edinburgh Festival. It's one of the most amazing things to do. I, I know. Closed... The Edinburgh Festival before. Have you not? You performed? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, it's so much fun. It's so much fun when you're young to go up there. Even when you're old, actually, I'd love to go back. But this year it's closed, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. I go down to the Edinburgh Festival from Aberdeen. So I just said, look, I want to move to Edinburgh because I love the festival. Yeah. I was honest. That was the reason. And there was this infectious disease HIV job working with heroin users that every single junior doctor had got for the last three years had resigned from because they were all terrified of picking up HIV from the from the drug users. Right, and yeah. Heroin users were characters. They were really like difficult to deal with because they were always swearing at you and lighting up joints and like a fire engine had to come and the, you know, all that kind of thing. So I got that job and um, they also allocated me jobs that really prestigious uh, in the main hospital as well because I was interested in doing HIV because right. I thought, well, actually, I should do this HIV. Then I know more about it, and um, and maybe you know, I don't know, somehow feel safer. Uh, and it was the right decision because I worked with this really amazing group of patients who were so desperately, you know, whole families dying, you know, brothers, sisters, mm -hmm. all at the same time because they were heroin users. And um, at the time, there was a methadone exchange program, and again. Today, I, I wish that people were offered more choices. They were just basically high dosed on methadone, over 200 mils, many of them. 
and um, and and they used the methadone to give them antiretroviral treatments. So they would dish out the methadone in the infectious disease clinic as a way of getting the patient back to give them the antiretrovirals to ensure good adherence. Right. And mm-hmm. there was a hospice there on site, and the ward was ward. 14. And there were some amazing clinicians, very um, inspirational clinicians who really loved this group of patients and wanted to take care of them. So, so yes, yeah, so I got into HIV that way. And, um, and then also uh, sexual health. And then I got to work with sex workers, interesting characters, right? Then I got interested in sexual health. I went to see someone and they just basically mapped my career and I followed it. And um, maybe, you know, subconsciously I was thinking about it. It was basically to be A, uh, around people who worked with HIV and didn't have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. and be around worked around with gay men and didn't have a problem with it so really i was seeking a place of safety right my subconscious was seeking a place of safety yeah now you look at junior doctors today they don't need to do that in their professional lives they can be surgeons neurosurgeons they don't they don't need seeking a place of safety as a main reason to drive a specialty choice whereas yeah. for me, in in the early 90s to mid 90s that was a very important reason because medicine was full of homophobic doctors i remember being told um in a in a medical final in aberdeen in the 80s uh, when I suggested that tuberculosis was one of the things that could be causing a particular problem in a patient, he just shut me down and said, well, you're not in Pakistan now. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, I'm not a not Pakistani, B, not been to Pakistan. I'm not even Indian, really. I'm a sort of Malaysian Indian. Yeah. Born yeah. in a town he was in. And uh, he, he, I just, I just cut, cut through me. It was actually in an exam. It was in a finals exam. Can you imagine being told that in a finals exam? Yeah. And, um, and then also once I, I went into a pediatric ward and the, you know, the, the trend of wearing your stethoscope around your neck, like collar. Yeah. Not, yeah. not not wearing where the earpieces are going around your neck like the fifties doctors and the you know the round bit dangles around your belly button was the old way of doing it. This new way of like flinging it around your neck had come in. So I walked in with my you know cool stethoscope around my neck and he said, Are you a puff or a pediatrician? Oh my god. Obviously they were anti pediatrics because they were like soft. So yeah. like <clears throat> like your male. And a puff, obviously, just to call a medical student a puff was acceptable. Yeah. Obviously, I was a puff and were very interested in pediatrics at the time, actually, as it happens. So, um, you know, like, sh- you know, they just induce shame for no reason. Yeah. You don't have to overcome all of those little microaggressions. It's a mi- micro, well, I call them microaggressions. When yeah. someone microaggressions when they spit in your face, that's a big aggression. I think. I know, yeah, and also saying puff or pediatrician is probably. That's not a microaggression. <laughs> <laughs> microaggressions are usually. Because you are right sizing my. Uh, right sizing me. Are you getting me right? Pulling me out of the 80s. Come yeah. on. Yeah, so, so, so a microaggression is when someone says, like, oh, you're just so cute for a black guy. Or. Things like that, yeah. yeah or like, yeah. oh, you're, you're just so articulate or articulate for a black guy. That's a, that's a microaggression. Like, it's it's usually it's like backhanded compliments or like um or subtle criticisms where you kind of think are they suggesting something sort of more sinister that it's usually yeah. things like that yeah but it's a bit like right. in pizza hut and the, the customer said my god you're so courteous where did you learn your manners yeah prime example yeah, like a brown yeah. person couldn't be so courteous yeah. how on earth could you be so courteous yeah that's i had that once the, sorry, sorry. the abuse you were, you were suffering as a student is a hate crime. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, God. My God, don't screw me up more than I already am, telling me I'm a victim of crime, hate crime, and then to all these dodgy sexual encounters that I had as a teenager with 40-year-old men. Oh, my God. I mean, social services would have been called in. I mean, if I was a patient in my clinic, I would have called social services in for me. Yeah, that's what I have to say. But you know, things have changed so much, so it's so wonderful. What did I experience then? This racist abuse? Yeah, it's that. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. I'll um, I'll reorientate some of my story. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think it's more comical because I think when you said the guy said to you, "Oh, you're poor pediatrician," you're like, "Oh, microaggressions." <laughs> <laughs> And he thought I was making a joke. Everybody laughed, right? Because I was wearing my stethoscope in the cool way compared to other people. Yeah. And um, it was meant to be a joke at my expense, but he didn't know I was gay. 
Yeah. And, uh, and it hurts me. You know, the problem is when you don't know someone might be that minority inside and you can inadvertently hurt people. And, and we're talking about that kind of um, wounding that happens repeatedly. And that's why sometimes um, I think sometimes we're in more pain as well, because when we're wounded young or have these woundings, I'm going to actually look at my uh, racism wounding since having this conversation with you guys, because I expected that button is pressed each time. And I've pushed yeah. it down, haven't I? Because I've, I've minimized it. Yeah. I've minimized it and pushed it down. So I maybe need to take take the lid off it and let it out. Yeah. And then because it's probably pushing me around sometimes. So that experience. So maybe not speaking up, uh, minimizing an experience, not seeking justice when I should have done at a particular occasion. Because I've got, I've got this, the, um, what's the word I'm using now? I mean, I don't know what I'm going to say. It's like, you know, I've got enough life experience to now not have to put up with that kind of thing. Yeah. I should be. Yeah. Maybe I'm not uh, speaking up when I should. And I'll look at that. Well, I think our different reaction to the experience that you went through, I think most of all, just shows how times have changed. And so, based, like, yeah. Yeah. Had Kieran and I have grown up in the environment that you had, we might be here saying the same things. We might be here that, like, someone calling you a fourth or someone like like shout mention abuse that you would like casual way to them. Because we've been um we've been obviously gone up in a different time, it's later where more people have spoken up, more people have recognised that this is actual like some cases abuse, some cases what homophobic or racist abuse. So we've we've now been given that framework to understand what's happened to us. Mm. When you wouldn't have um you wouldn't have had it then. So had yeah. reverse, it probably would have been in exactly the same place. Yeah. It's the environment, I think, because if you, especially if you grew up back then, I think you just had to be more resilient by default um, yeah. because of how sort of unenlightened a lot of society was. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if that's resilience. You know, what, what I've done is probably, I'm just thinking about it now for the first time. What I've done is I've written it off as a minor thing because it's probably hurt me. Yeah. yeah? Because otherwise yeah. I'd have face a wound and I've had to face pain. Mm -hmm. right so it's pain i've not processed yeah so you haven't processed pain it's sitting there underneath the surface with a very light scab and the scab pops open every now and the pain comes out yeah. so for me i know that from my own life experience when i've done that it leads me to unhealthy behaviors mm -hmm. or it leads me to anger <clears throat> or it leads me to uh so either project something that's not good onto others anger yep. what it is uh or harm myself mm -hmm. behaviors that harm me right that doesn't take care of me either eat unhealthy or i don't know all those kind of behaviors we all know the range of behaviors i feel like yeah. we into them uh that are harmful to our health and um and we sometimes behave in that way because actually we are hurt in pain yeah. and, and scabs just come off because i haven't processed that pain whereas if i if I open that pain and, and hold myself and allow it to heal, and of course there's a little imprint there where the pain was, when I hear it or experience it, my reactions come from a place of healing as a place as opposed to a place of wounding. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, I just try, I'm just working on all of that now. So thank you guys for giving me extra work to do on myself. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, so we are on the ward in Edinburgh. We, I'm sorry, we went off on a tangent. People were scared of getting HIV from sweat. There was so much stigma. And, um, you know, if a person with HIV had a cake, then they offered you a slice. People were scared to eat the slice of cake. Yeah. Even though it was an act of kindness from their part. And it was a very lonely journey. And there was so much rejection. Funeral homes not one to taking. As a doctor, it was actually really hard because you had to fight for your patients to get, like, say, for example, if you wanted a CT scan or a place in an intensive care unit for your patient or a special investigation done, like taking a piece of bone marrow from a blood doctor. You know, you'd have it was like going into battle because they've got AIDS, they're gonna die, don't waste time. That was the answer you got off everyone. So you were like ready for that answer. And then you had to get around that answer somehow because like, you know, you had to say, well, yes, they have AIDS. Yes, they're gonna die. But if you do this and we treated this, we can get another three months more of life or six months more of life or improve their quality of life or the experience of life. So you were like fighting for your patient the whole time and fighting against HIV stigma the whole time. And that's probably given me a little bit of, um, nervousness in large hospital organizations. I always think people are going to reject me and my patients. Yeah. Uh, so I got to work on that one too. And then, um, and then of course it got a lot better, didn't it? Treatment came in and treatment, and there were some difficult side effects at the start for some years. 
and now we've got really great treatment and and now community viral load is so low that you know the chance of getting hiv is low because the average person either is diagnosed and treated and can't transmit it but um the challenge now is to find you know the 10 percent of gay men who are have got hiv and haven't had a test yeah. and aren't getting the benefits of treatment and care and love and support and an undetectable viral load yeah uh, that, mm. that would actually bring me to my next question if mm. like you gave us a pretty pretty big pretty good picture of what it was like to treat patients with hiv mm. in the 80s but how has that changed now for like well, you know, now HIV is just a long-term condition like diabetes, right? You take, you get diagnosed, you take treatment, you get monitored six monthly, and then you, you get old and you get other stuff going on with you. And HIV is an incidental thing. Yeah. And um, and really the chronic, the difficulties with HIV now are the comorbidities as people age, they get diabetes, they get cancer, they get high blood pressure, they get the consequences of heart disease or liver disease or some other problem. So that's one group, aging is an issue. Uh, the other issue is um, mental health. A lot of people struggle with difficulties with mental health, poor, poor mood, isolation, depression. And um, it's a really difficult thing because many people with HIV uh, come from marginalized communities. So they might be poor, they might be immigrant. Uh, and in terms of gay men, there's a huge range from all of those excluded from society to people who are very articulate and manage the HIV extremely well. Mm-hmm. So there is a big range, but there's also a vulnerable population that struggle with mental health. And, you know, uh, we do our best, but not everybody's, you know, ready to face their demons and open their little pain bodies and work on them, you know, themselves. Yeah. It's a very difficult thing. And then drugs and alcohol are the big thing. We have big problems with alcohol and drugs. And we do have a problem with alcohol and drugs in our community. It's three times higher than in straight people. Um, yeah. uh, we have the whole chemsex phenomenon, which is, I think, really a, a, a search for brotherhood, belonging, you know, being safe, yeah. community, all the things I was looking for going into sexual health. Yeah. They're, not, they're really noble things that people are seeking. And yes, if you can manage your chemsex well and you're boundaried and you get up on Saturday and go to your mother's for Sunday roast or whatever it is you're having or jerk chicken on Sunday with your mother and she has, you know, you've turned up on time and you're not in trouble. Great. You're doing, you're managing it. But if you're cancelling appointments, not turning up, if you've got a disciplinary at work or you're off sick too much um, or you end up having sex with people you don't fancy or um, doing something sexual that you regret or feel nervous about later, then maybe you're crossing some boundaries that you weren't meant to for your own self and uh, you need to talk to someone about it. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a bigger issue amongst um, men and actually it's, it's, it's a bigger issue in queer people of colour. Yeah, and I, and I don't know if that's because of displacement, whether we're further away from home, and therefore we don't have a mum to go to for Sunday lunch. Yeah, too far away, and therefore we haven't got a mum saying where the f are you? Except mum would never use that word. <laughs> you know, we haven't got that, and that's social capital. You know, someone ringing you and checking in on you on a Sunday morning is social capital, and we might be missing out on that social capital. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there any questions that you had, Kieran? Um, no, that's come to my mind. I think we've covered um, what was mm-hmm. interesting or what I didn't know about. Um, so I've learned a lot, essentially. Mm. What did you know about? Chemsex as well, something I wasn't too familiar with. Oh, I just heard people really talk about it. Um, really clueless on the chemsex, to be honest with you. I think both. Well, please talk a little bit about the chemsex drugs. It might be handy for someone what doing drugs? it. What drugs do they use? Oh, um... uh, in chemsex, the most common drugs used in the UK are um, crystal meth. Uh, which is also called Tina, uh, GHB or G, uh, G, which is called G or Gina, rest less commonly, but G is what is referred to, are the two most common drugs. Then another drug can be methadrone and another drug can be ketamine sometimes, okay? So those are the common, so some people use cocaine less commonly. Crystal meth is like these crystal, like broken bits of glass, which you can put in a glass balled pipe and then you mm-hmm. heat the glass ball where it's the crystals are and it vaporizes and you inhale the vapor or you can mix it in sterile water hopefully you sterilize it well and inject yourself with it and that's referred right. to as slang okay uh, it's it's the it's very very potent and it causes a high peak of dopamine in your brain so it causes intense feelings of euphoria and pleasure and it and it's associated with sexual arousal so people feel all powerful Suddenly my fat belly has gone as to a six pack and suddenly my white hair has gone black and suddenly <laughs> this person in front of me is a god. 
Yeah. <laughs> like. And so naturally, it's a very pleasurable experience and it's drama. So it's actually far more, um, well, I don't want to use the word addictive, but a far, it, it stimulates the brains far higher than things like crack cocaine and cocaine. Okay. And that's not very many gay men know that because it's quite normalized to take crystal meth during sex. But people need to understand that this drug, the way it stimulates your dopamine receptors is much higher than cocaine and even crack cocaine. So that pleasurable experience that you're having is bloody amazing, but it's not really, you can't compete with it, with anything else. You can't go to an amazing film and feel that pleasure. You can't have an amazing fee, uh, sexual partner and amazing sober sex that could compete against that. Nor can you have... Uh, a nice puppy in your hands that looks so cute and it can't compete with that okay or a nice night out with friends can't compete with that so which means everything else eventually becomes boring and that's the only thing the person wants but the brain wants for pleasure because it's like supranormal pleasurable yeah obviously with that comes a consequence like lost sleep and the lost sleep and the drug in itself causes a paranoia or psychosis like you know feeling suspicious or people's notice of wondering if they're filmed or the police are after them or um, they've been drugged or something like that. Yeah. And then, uh, so obviously that paranoia can be temporary or it can become permanent or it can come during the cycle, during the first hit. So if you're somebody who's experienced something called the kindling phenomenon is when you've been high before and then you've become paranoid, the kindling phenomenon is basically go straight to the trauma. So a little bit of crystal meth, you're not going, you don't go high, you go straight to the trauma of psychosis. Right. And so people who experience the kindling phenomenon basically can't take the drug again because their brain is just screwed up about it. And the other thing that people experience, they get very hot, they sweat, and it's called hyperpyrexia. And they sweat a lot and they dehydrate, which can damage their kidneys. And, and they don't hydrate. And the heat in itself is a neurotoxin. So it, it damages the brain. So the drug damages the brain and the hyperpyrexia, the heat damages the brain. So you get direct death of brain cells. And um, however, what people remember is that first experience, the first high. And it's subconsciously, the brain is set to go because life just becomes duller and duller. And if you take it frequently, your average mood because of the come downs is dragged down. So eventually when you're taking it, you might be taking it just like a cigarette to feel normal. So I hear heroin similar to that, isn't it? Where you have that first heroin, amazing hit. Heroin is no, different in that you get physical dependence. You get with physical withdrawals. With right. meth, you get cravings. You get cravings to do it because you, you're, you're basically, your experience of life is becoming black and white and you want color. You're desperate for color again. And the only thing that can bring you color is meth. And um, and then that's why, that's the addiction cycle. And then, you know, of course, you don't turn up to stuff. You miss work. You have fractured relationships, you've spent all your money, or maybe behave in ways that are more, but cross your own moral compass, like you lie or you cheat or you do stuff that you really regret. And then, so those are the times to come and talk to us in a sexual health clinic, because we're open-minded people and we'll take care of you and we understand that you didn't mean for it to end up like this. And you might not even be ready to stop, you might want to continue, and that's fine too. We just can give you information and we can hold you. Um, and we can refer you to services, um, which we are, we've got good relationships. We've got, you know, we know the chemsex friendly people, so we can, you know, get them, you to them. Mm -hmm. um, so methadone is just like cocaine. It's got a shorter half-life and people use it repeatedly and sometimes they inject it as well. But because it's got a short half-life, people keep injecting. So you run out of needles and you might end up sharing. Mm -hmm. And um, and then uh, with um, GHB, it's a really serious drug because it's probably an important cause of gay men's death and it's not a routine drug that's screened during toxicology at post-mortem so if you find a gay, dead gay man in his bed they would do a whole tox screen he could have taken a ghb accidental overdose and they wouldn't be picked up so unless it's specifically requested for uh, there's some technology now to pick up to see if it's done quickly after the death uh, to to detect it so really um you know i would want all of us to call for post-mortem certainly in urban centers to look for ghb and get our coroners it's one of my things on my job plan to try and do so we can really measure what gay men are dying off whether or what how much how many people ghp is killing mm -hmm. um certainly there's an estimate that there's a 200 been a 200 percent increase between 2000 and been a short time actually to 2013 there was a paper oh. some toxicologists in london very big increases in, in it's small numbers but mm -hmm. it's not it's not routinely tested but the small numbers that were tested went from x to y which was a very big increase but so i think we need to to look at that more as a community am i getting confused ghb is that the date rate drug or drug is that something else 
PHP, yeah, it's a liquid. It's taken in one to two mil aliquots. So you just draw up a mil and then you squirt it into a drink and you drown it. And then you get high. It's a bit like, I think it's like vodka on speed, basically. You know, like when you have a drink, you get a bit chatty mm. and, like, and then you get a bit like crazy and then, yeah. then you fall asleep, right? Right. right. It's like, basically, you, go, you shoot straight up and then you crash if you take too much and you go into a coma and you stop breathing and you die. Because basically, right. taken too much. So if you take the right amount, you stay on that high, and then you, it runs out of your body. Then you stay on that high and runs away. But if you take it too close together, if you mix it with alcohol, if you take it with a sleeping pill, you have high risk of going into coma and stopping breathing. Because and if you you are having chemsex and somebody has gone to sleep, they're not asleep. They're in a coma. You need to monitor their breathing. If there's any concern, you need to dial nine nine nine. And emergency services don't care. You've been taking drugs. They care to take a look after the sick person. Okay, so yeah. well. And if you don't dial nine nine nine, and something bad happens to the person, then police get involved, and your life is wrecked. And that's happened to some of my patients too. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm. But yeah, like I said, uh, chemsex is the whole world, the whole new world for me. Never uh, yeah. 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 Well, it is for a lot of people, and you know, it bring if you're a new boy in a town and you don't know anyone, and you're two hundred miles from home or two thousand miles from home. You're feeling lonely and you want connection. You get to spend 24 hours with a group of guys who think you're gorgeous. Mm, yeah. It's attractive, isn't it? Yeah. So, but then it comes with it consequences sometimes. I'm not saying chemsex is bad for everyone because some people are very boundaried. They'll say, I'm just taking this much. I'm leaving by 3 a.m. And because tomorrow morning I have to wake up to do X, Y, or Z, or tomorrow afternoon I've got a commitment. Mm -hmm. And people are very boundaried and they can, and can manage it. But... I, I find that, you know, as a as person, certainly as queer people of color, to assume that we're the most resilient people in the planet, I think mixing drugs, alcohol to excess and our life lived experiences is taking a risk because we've all got little pain bodies that are unhealed. Like today I discovered my racism pain body, which hasn't completely, I haven't faced up to. Yeah. And, you know, I, if I then dabble in injecting crystal meth and I haven't dealt with my little pain bodies in me that are pushing me around sometimes in life, it could be a very attractive solution to that pain rather than dealing with the pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I see. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's harm reduction is basically knowing that the psychosis is from sleep deprivation, making sure, uh, and also the drug, and the drug does damage the brain. Staying cool and drinking plenty of water, uh, making sure that you measure your G properly, and reaching out to sexual health clinics because we don't judge and you can talk about these things. It doesn't go on your medical record in your primary care GP record. And you can be really open about such things, including behaviors like fisting or things that you maybe you regret or whether you worried you were sexually assaulted. All of those things you can talk to us about uh, off the record. It doesn't go anywhere until you work it out in your own head. Um, and um, we can support you because we don't, we know that Many of us are struggling with lots of things and very complex. We are complex people and interesting, wonderful, beautiful works of art. Uh, but we just need to learn to realize and accept that. And yeah. sometimes we have to go off, the, go off on tangents to get there. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask, actually, the, uh, the question that came into my head is that, like, depending on, like, I don't know, someone's racial, social, economic background or anything like that, are there any differences to, like, the type of approach that you take with them? as like a doctor patient or that are there anything any certain thing that certain risk factors that like one particular group should be more concerned about you see i think color and race is a very blunt instrument mm -hmm. right it's very easy to say it's a black and ethnic minority issue which is what this country loves to do if we're all bames together yeah. and, uh, and under the bame umbrella hides a lot of different things it hides uh cultural social um uh community uh it hides all the real true things right yeah rejection belonging you know for us belonging rejection uh resilience uh capability um childhood adverse events yeah. um so you got to look at you look you got to look at the real thing is underneath the bame not the bame the, and obviously the problem with bame is i can't do anything about your bame status so i'm not doing anything yeah. The bane. Whereas it's an excuse using race as an epidemiological risk factor is an excuse for inaction, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We need to we need to we need to ask people to find out, well listen, can we just look for the real reason why there's a health inequality? Yeah. 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 I was gonna ask, did, did you mean these 
speaking about specifically coronavirus or in general? Um, well, coronavirus is an issue, but it is an issue for sexual health. So, for example, if you're black or uh, black Caribbean or black mixed from our St. George's state, you're twice as likely to have chemsex. Really? I did not know that. Really? Yeah. From St. George's. worked. So my kind of stereotypical idea of chemsex is that it was probably practiced less by sort of um, ethnic minorities. I would, I would have made that assumption but, as well. I don't know where it comes from. Um, well, in, in London, in Southwest London, obviously it's not a community sample. Yeah. So in a community sample, so amongst people who are accessing a sexual health clinic, they're twice as likely. But what about overall, the overall population, it might be less, right? Because right, yeah. uh, guess, yeah. other substances might be used or whatever it is. So, yeah. but I think, um, you know, for example, mental health problems are more common in black ethnic minorities and Asian ethnic minority gay men. Yeah. Uh, yeah. STIs are more common in black mixed and black Caribbean um, gay men more common but you know that could be networks so if you've got a, a network that's got more stis even if you have one partner you might get one whereas if you have a network with slightly less stis if you have 10 partners you might not get an sti yeah yeah it's yeah. a combination of the network having a, a higher sti rate and then who you have so you have the networks you're having sex within and your sexual behavior um so so we know from Public Health England data, concurrency having more than one partner at once is more common in Black African gay men mm -hmm. and uh, uh, um, Black Caribbean gay men or Black mixed gay men. Uh, but but um, condomless anal sex is about the same, right? Whereas in Asian gay men, condomless anal sex is higher, but HIV is lower, all right, for now. But if they do get HIV, they come in a lot later with lower CD4 counts. And they're more li less likely to identify as gay, so they're more likely to identify as MSM or men of sex with men. And that could be a cultural thing. That could be a a thing that where people social pressure to marry women is high if they're gay, and then they just have gay sex on the side, and that's the way the model for for being a gay man is that without a gay identity, no. we have to be open to that construct. Or it could be that actually they really want to be gay, but they're imprisoned in this social structural norm. And I don't know which it is, or it might be something in between, and it might be different things for different people. And um, and I don't know much about it, but I think it really warrants inquiry. Mm -hmm. mm. And obviously if STIs are going down in all groups, all right, but least in Asian gay men uh, uh, for HIV, uh, you could argue that as, Black gay men, black mixed gay men, white gay men get their prep and undetectable viral loads, and the Asians are still having unprotected sex and coming very late with HIV diagnosis. You can expect to see HIV in Asian gay men being the highest South Asian gay men in in years to come. Yeah, so it's a, it's a complicated picture, really. There's no real straight answer, and I'd be really interested to talk to you know queer people of color or gay men of color who are having sex to try and understand why this STI discrepancy and whether Things like displacement, so you're in a state of anxiety, acceptance, belongingness, whether these things, because sex is a really wonderful way to just fix some of these negative experiences in life, you know, when you're young, especially, you know, yeah. you know yeah. not gonna have gin and tonic, a chocolate cake or a bit of sex. And I mean, I mean, let's face it, a bit of sex sounds the most attractive out of the three for most people. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of off bite now, is there anything like, what like what should I like direct focus on in terms of like HIV prevention or like? I think we need to get more men of color on prep who need it. So if you're having sex without a condom, wherever you're having it, whether you're on the down low, whether you're on the up high, whether you're open, whether you're doing it with chems, whether you're doing not, if the penis is going into your anus or your penis is going to someone else's anus and there ain't a condom on it, come and talk to us about prep, and um, and uh, the NHS will be doing this for free from October. So. We need more people and you know you can be just if you're curious and you're just dialing in to listen or if you're not sure you're gay or you have a strong pressure to not reveal yourself but you are having the secret life where you're going and having sex come and talk to us we, we're really open-minded people look i went on that journey uh you know a lot of us have been on that journey so you know it's not there's no shame in it and nobody's going to judge you and we just want to take care of you and get you on prep if you need it and all sexual health clinics are like that and you can just speak your truth look i'm just so scared to come out or i'm scared i'm not sure if i'm gay but i am having sex with men 
people will meet you where you are. They're not going to try and fix you or force you to do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is the process to getting prep quite straightforward now then? It is straightforward so- at the moment. The prep impact trial is still recruiting for the 12th of, I don't know, that. I think we're going out after that, aren't we, 12th of July? We are probably going out after the 12th of July. So prep stops on the 12th of July and the NH- on, on, on the impact trial. And then there's a, there's a gap and then the NHS takes over um, providing it from October. Okay. Where I'm not quite sure what's going to happen in the transition, but we're working on looking at a solution and it's very last minute. But uh, hopefully the people who really need it will still get it. So wherever you are in the country, if you go to a sexual health clinic, and if you're listening to this and you're having unprotected sex with men, and that means putting a penis in an anus without a condom or having a penis put in your anus without a condom, and that's happening every now and again, come and talk to about PrEP. We are not interested in telling your mom or your community or forcing you to come out or judge you that you're having a secret life if you're married to a woman. It doesn't really matter. We can get you on PrEP and find you a way to, to, to manage that. So just for people who don't know, um, uh-huh. what is PrEP? Like, yeah, just- Ah, PrEP. Okay, PrEP is two tablets, uh, two medicines, tenofovir and emtricitabine, fixed into one pill. And those drugs stop HIV from multiplying, okay? And really, the only purpose of a virus is to multiply in your body. And the more virus there is, the sicker you become because your body reacts to that virus. So same for coronavirus, same for HIV. And the HIV virus, unfortunately, multiplies in your um, CD4 cells, which help your immune system. So your immune system becomes weaker over time as the virus multiplies. And um, and then um, all the drugs do is stop the virus multiplying. So less virus means less inflammation, less damage, stronger immune system, longer life. Okay? So yeah. that's the theory for HIV. So two of these drugs, which means you, two of these drugs are always floating around your body and in your cells. Mm-hmm. When the virus tries to get it, it just bounces straight out because your body is like a toxic environment, the virus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're having sex with a condom, even if somebody comes inside you, your risk of picking up HIV is very close to zero. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, with two drugs in your system all the time. So you can take it all the time, which is every day, and once you've taken it for seven days, you're free to have unprotected sex, and you should carry on taking it. And if you stop having sex and want to take a break, just carrying it on for another seven days. Okay? The end, mm-hmm. ideally. And there's another way of taking it, which is event-based. So if you're somebody who's very organized and has an Excel spreadsheet of when you're due to have sex and you're going to log into Grind at 9 a.m. on Friday and by 12, you're going to find someone, you're going to meet them at 8 p.m. and then on you know, Monday, you're going to be doing something else. So you're very organized and you know what's going to happen next weekend. You, you can take event-based. You can take two tablets on Friday morning, you have sex on Friday night and you have Monday and Tuesday, take two more tablets. And that just is enough. So this is enough to not for the NM trisatomula to, to stop HIV entering. And that means you don't have to be on medication every day. But if you're having sex at least once a week, and that's and then and every now and again is without a condom, and you don't know when that's going to happen, it's better just to take it once a day. Yeah. Okay. And it doesn't mean starting it means you have to be on it forever. Remember, you can find a partner and settle down uh, for a while who's negative or positive or is undetectable and you can just have unprotected sex with that partner and you're going to be monogamous for a year or two you don't need prep you're going to be if you're going into um uh a situation where you know you're going to have just abstained from sex for a while you don't need to take prep and then when you start again having sex you can take prep and you know we don't expect this is not a lifelong commitment this is just an additional tool for the periods in your life when you're having sex and occasionally unprotected you know sex without a condom is happening yeah. And and prep will protect against HIV. Yeah. How effective and, is prep when taken? Uh, well, depending on which trial you look at, if you think if you take it properly, it's virtually hundred percent, but certainly over ninety percent. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, and um, the problem is people don't take it properly. So in the in the proud study, it was like you know eighty six percent protective. Yeah. But then and, um, when you take know... when you put taking good adherence and everything, it's like going to hundred percent. Do we know about any side effects of prep, or other concerns that might there, there might be any oh. long-term side effects? Or so, as we are a poor people of color program, M tricytabine interestingly causes freckling of the palms. So, if you've got like little moles, little like freckles, you can yeah. get freckles here, uh, in particularly in people of color. Uh, however, okay. the drug it tends to fade away. It's a minor side effect, but if you have lots of freckles in your hands, it's not a good look, is it? You might not want to have that. Um, and occasionally can suppress your bone marrow, but I've never really seen it. And occasionally can affect sleep, apparently. But, you know, sometimes people have complained about that. Tenofovir is uh, something that um, 
uh, so the, the, the M-tricytabine component is what I'm saying is pretty safe without any long-term toxicities. Um, however, tenofovir, on the other hand, has a small risk of damaging your kidneys by making them more leaky. So if you imagine your kidneys like a filter, like a sieve, where the blood goes through and through the holes of the sieve, drops off anything it doesn't want and sucks back anything it needs and goes back, back into the bloodstream. And what happens with the sieve, if your kidneys are sieve, is the holes become bigger and the good stuff from the blood drops through into your urine and you pee it out. Uh, so your protein levels in your urine goes up and then eventually your kidneys get damaged. It's something called the Fanconi renal syndrome. And then it can affect your bones and thin your bones, uh, particularly if you've got that, but also it can do that separately. It causes osteopenia, thinning of the bones. And as we're a poor people of color, and we don't get enough sun because we live in a European country, we need to make sure we get lots of vitamin D. Yeah. So I take that as a supplement. Uh, you can buy vitamin D3, or you can get some sun in the summer months, which is the best, most healthy way to get vitamin D. And the other healthy ways are th eating things like sardines, oily fish, fresh, sa fresh salmon, uh, you know, there's a long list of medicines that are vitamin D rich, egg yolks. Um, so have, you know, we're, we've got dark skin and we li live in a country with very little sun. Mm -hmm. So we need to sunbathe when we can without damaging our skin because we don't want freckles, uh, not freckles, wrinkles. Um, but I've, I've not done too badly, I don't think. But anyway, for those of you. Who... <laughs> uh, and uh, not too many wrinkles, just wore lots of white hair. And... Um, that's the stress, the minority stress made my hair white. Um, my brother's a year younger, he's got a complete black head of hair, and he's a year younger than me, and he's straight. So I'm just like, the only difference between you and me is that I'm gay and you're straight, which means I've really suffered and you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't bite. And uh, anyway, so on prep, make sure your bones are strong. High impact exercise, running protects your bones. So I'm not saying that you're going to get osteopenia or bone loss, but you might if you end up taking it for 10, 20 years. But the reality is the drug we use in 10, 20 years is unlikely to be tenofovir. We'll be switching to different, more fancy drugs that are safer. So in reality, just get your kidneys checked at baseline and then about three, four months after you start and then about once a year after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, how has diet doing your work how has it changed since this whole coronavirus has hit oh my god it's turned my world upside down it has. <laughs> you know i had this 15 month break where i went and did this masters in public health and i was all into anthropology and like you know you know macros upstream determinants of health which is actually yeah. very relevant to us and i was you know coming and i was going to do like this big upstream determinants for queer people of color i was going to be really exciting fancy cool things we we're going to like get you all to do your intersectionality scores and you know, get queer people of color all excited and riled up about their, you know, identities and the need for them to, you know, be whole and accepted. Uh, but then coronavirus hit and then we are not allowed to see see anyone. We have to ring everybody on the phone. We have to post the medication. We have to minimize the tests, get them to do online tests, yeah. get them to send us pictures of their penis with their wart on it and not see the thing that's attached to the penis. So we're just dealing with the wart. Yeah. I'm not a whole person. So, I mean, how can you do an intersectionality score when you're just looking at a picture of a penis with a wart on it? It's just not very nice. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I think it's, um, but the digital revolution is, is really good for young people because you guys are busy. And actually, sometimes you just wanted to send a picture and say, look, it sort me out. Don't, don't piss around with my time. I'm far too busy to come and sit in your clinic. So that's good. That's great that that's happened. But the, there's, there's a lot of less human contact. And of course, a waiting room, which could fit loads of people, can only now have a maximum of nine at any one time. So we're having nine people come every half an hour uh, and getting through the day. So we have to minimize the number of people that come in in order to cope with the, um, the pressure. It's a lot more digital and phone and remote working. So, yeah, but STIs went down, demand for services went down to 75 calls a day. Uh, and then we're back to 300 calls a day. And we see a lot of gay men in our service, a lot of syphilis. And in lockdown, there were chemsex parties still going on and people still hooking up and stuff like that. But, yeah. you know, I have a lot of compassion for guys who are doing that. You know, a lot of people are very judgmental, you know, like you shouldn't be cooking up, you're spreading coronavirus and all the rest of it. But yeah. You're, you know, if you're sitting in a bed sit and you hate all your people in your building and you're on your own and there's no outside space and you've just lost your job, um, mm. it's very difficult to tell that person just to be whole and happy yeah. sitting at home. Yeah. Mm. I think, um, especially now, I imagine that like people, like, cause there's like a stigma of people who 
have like still been having sex like when we're supposed to be locked down which might prevent them from from seeking services yeah you know guys you're more than welcome if you have been really very active then we will give you a hug because obviously that some level you might have been in some pain or loneliness and we're not going to judge you and even if you were like basically a flagrant rebel that did it as rebellion we'll still look after you because what we're interested in is getting the test done getting the treatment done and making you well and yeah, uh, and yeah that's it that's the minimum then if you want to get more you can yeah um, you don't have to yeah you where you are I think that's a good note to wrap on. I like that. Yeah, I was about to say that. Like, yeah. I talk much about STIs and stuff, but you know, basically, in the old week, just come to a sexual health clinic. Bottom line, just get your ass to our clinics, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've really enjoyed it, and I thanks for the free therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write a page about this now and like reflect on it and all that crap that I go through. Anyway, you don't have to do that yet, guys. Just enjoy life, right? And don't get too serious. Well, too thanks serious. for speaking with us. I've really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, um, it's been very informative. Like, all right, you guys take care. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, yeah, that was um, Black Boy Joy. Um, we were joined by Dr. Mark Packy and Nathan. Um, you can listen to us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. We have an FM page on Anchor.com. Um, um, you can follow us on Instagram. Um, that Instagram is um, at Black Boy Joy Podcast. And on Twitter, that is Black Boy Joy Pod. And um, anything you want to say to us, you can do that um, by email. That is Black Boy Joy Podcast at gmail.com. So, yes. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you very much.